You know the old the the professor that walks around with the suit jacket with the patches on the elbows, those leather patches, they look very sophisticated. Well, the reason why those patches existed is because they couldn't afford to go get a new jacket because the pay was so low. And doctors had to get in their car and drive to go visit their patients, and their pay was really low. And if they had medical bills or had medical uh, student loans, it took them forever to get them paid off. Well, now we've reversed that. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another exciting second hour of The Personal Wealth Coach. Starring Jake McClure this week. Jeff being out, not feeling so well. Um, so send him your best. And I know we have at least one listener. Philip, thank you for thanking me for the program. And happy Easter to you, which leads me to my next subject we're going to go into a strange uh, set of creatures. There are six mammals that lay eggs. What does this have to do with the economy? You will see shortly. Uh, the animals that lay eggs are centralized in Australia and New Guinea, except for the sixth one. Uh, there's the duck-billed platypus, the western long-beaked echidna, the eastern long-beaked echidna, the short-beaked echidna, the Sir David's long-beaked echidna, and a strange pastel-colored bunny that shows up in early spring kind of all over the North America. Um, not to be confused with the large chocolate bells of France, uh, this is a bunny that is uh, at home in North America and in Northern Europe. Strange pastel egg-laying bunny. Happy Easter, everyone. And I know a lot of you say that's not the reason for Easter, uh, there's also religious meaning there, and it's wonderful. It's a speaking of hope and so on. Well, so is the bunny. It's a, just a longer, older religion of fertility and the coming of spring. Put it all together. And I know it's kind of a weird thing. A lot of times people look at uh, a religious holiday from their own perspective of whether that's Christianity or Hindu or Buddhist or whatever. When there's a shared, <laughs> there's a shared history there, the word Easter comes from the goddess named Yoster, uh, which is a Northern European goddess of fertility and spring. Uh, and just, uh, we spoke last year a bit about the concept of the Catholic faith. The reason why we still call it Easter is because when people converted to Christianity in Northern Europe, they didn't want to give up their festivals. Those are fun. And the Catholic Church didn't want to make them give up the festivals. They're happier people if they celebrate the coming of spring and the harvest season and the longest night of the year and the longest day of the year. These are things that people have been celebrating as long as people have been looking at the sky. And you need breaks. So it's not surprising that just about every religion on the planet celebrates spring somehow. Um, if, if you're celebrating from the concept of the, the rebirth and resurrection, then that is a beautiful way of celebrating. And if you're celebrating because animals are giving birth and um, there's new growth, it's the same concept of hope and, and newness. And why am I adding this all together? There's possibility of a lot of people being offended by talking about religion like this. Because from an economic perspective, it's very, very important. I mean, Black Friday or, or uh, is uh, when, or 
it, it's the day after Thanksgiving when retailers suddenly make enough to make a profit for the year. Uh, well, what does that come from? Well, purchasing for Christmas, which is one of those festivals that uh, has a very long tradition before Christianity and after. Um, the reason for it is there. Uh, spring has a rebirth in the economy as well. We're through the, the winter so these phases that we mark throughout history in our calendars and in our religions for different reasons come through on statistics and in demographics and on our outlook on life. So happy Easter, everybody. Enjoy it for the reasons that you enjoy it and be open to everybody else about it. I think that um, <laughs> I think it's important that um, people be encompassing of love wherever it comes from. All right. Uh, when it comes to the world of medicine, new stuff is coming onto the market at a massive rate. And by the market, I mean practice. What is, what is the new stuff? It's all so new that they have to completely retrain the doctors to use it. Nobody knows how to give these treatments. They're very customized gene treatments and things that are working on different kinds of cancer and on different types of genetic disorders. But they come with all kinds of very high-tech stuff, like they've got to be stored at a certain temperature, generally like liquid nitrogen stuff, minus 238 degrees, stuff like that, and then cooled off or warmed up in a very careful process, have to be administered within a given period of time. It's a very, very delicate process for a lot of these new treatments. But the new treatments are there. And the long term of that is that our life expectancy is going to go up. There are lots of new things coming onto the market right now. And I said this at the depths of the lockdown of the pandemic, that we would see an explosion of new treatments coming out over under the new FDA rules, making things come out faster. It's a big deal, a really, 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 really big deal. A lot of incurable diseases are no longer incurable, and a lot of money is still being focused in that area. So that just on the medicine front, that's cool. Now, we have a lot of broken stuff on the medicine front. Trying to figure out how much you're going to pay for something in advance is nearly impossible if you have insurance. There's all these patients' bills of rights, then you go to the hospital or to a doctor and they give you this you have the right to request a, uh, a firm estimate on what the procedure will cost you up to a day before the procedure occurs. That right is only available if you don't have insurance. It's weird, huh? You don't get a say or get to know what your procedure is going to cost in advance if you have insurance. And I think that's broken. Um, I had a procedure done in 2020 and I spent four months working with the hospital system to try to get an estimate of what the price would be for the procedure. And I didn't get one. They didn't know. They couldn't know the procedure price because they hadn't done their negotiation with the insurance company that week. And each insurance company has their own negotiation. It's weird. Uh, the doctor doesn't know what the procedure is going to cost even when doing the procedure. I mean, where else do you go to buy something that the person selling it to you doesn't know what the cost is and you still buy it? Oh, college, that, that counts. <laughs> at least then you know what the price is at the point that you're paying it. With, with health, you don't know. 
Now, Wall Street Journal has done a lot of exposés about this, but the reality is it's a bureaucracy. It's a massive bureaucracy at every level, and it's run by its, its foundation is based in the concept of the codes issued by Medicare. Those medical codes that are applied come from Medicare, and they have agreed that Medicare will pay X amount of money, and that's the standard that the all negotiations start with at the private insurance level. This is the Medicare price. And then they go up and down from there, and it's all over the map. One hospital could pay, could doing one procedure, the same procedure on 14 people could have 14 different charges of differing amounts of money for that procedure, depending on what insurance company it is. How's the doctor supposed to know that? The doctor's supposed to get trained up on what they're doing. And that doctor is, is lacking in training on all these new techniques that are coming out, which are also expensive. And the training of the doctor is expensive. So trying to figure out all of this, there's whole departments at hospitals that have nothing to do with patient care. They're just trying to figure out what things cost. What is it? And they generally find out well after the fact. This is a problem. The technology that's coming to medicine is amazing. And we have a for-profit world on the pharmaceutical side of things that is making amazing new techniques and amazing new treatments that are saving amazing numbers of people. And when they come to market with it, they're going to charge something because they want to keep making new stuff. And they also want to be profitable because that they are for profit. They're generally publicly held, publicly traded companies with stocks going to them. And then the hospital has to buy the treatment from the pharmaceutical company. And they have to negotiate that rate with the pharmace pharmaceutical company. Then they have to negotiate a rate for the treatment with the insurance companies. And then they have to have a standard rate that they apply to people that don't have insurance. And it may, be, it may have been easier if I had just said, hey, I don't have insurance. What is this going to cost me? And then say, no, I have insurance. But then that may have delayed everything and every, it wouldn't have been correct. So we have a major Frankenstein of socialism and capitalism in medicine. And it's been around since way before Obamacare. We talked about this at the time that the Affordable Care Act was passed. We've had a socialized medical system since the 1980s when a law was passed that said not-for-profit hospitals, if they have the capacity to treat trauma, must treat the trauma when somebody shows up regardless of their ability to pay. If somebody's spurting from a major vein, and they come in and they've got no proof of insurance, they're buck naked. If it's a not-for-profit institution, and the vast majority of hospitals are, they've got to treat that person. That's an obligation that's been there since the 1980s, and it's an unfunded obligation. The government didn't say, and we'll pay you money for that. They said you have to do it if you're not-for-profit. That's why you're not-for-profit. You're here to help people. So how do they get the money? Well, they charge the people that have insurance more money to care for the people that don't have insurance. That's why insurance rates go up. Okay, so come forward, they made it easier to get insurance during the Affordable Care Act. You can have all kinds of political arguments over whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's, in my mind, it's irrelevant. It's a thing that exists. So now that lowered insurance rates for about five years, and then they started back up again. And since then, insurance rates have gone up at a much higher average rate than the market. Much higher. And if you look at some of the greatest earning companies in the market, you're looking at insur health insurance companies. So there's some real problems that need to be fixed. And this glowing optimism of new treatments coming. If we look at our 
uh, medical system today, and from my early adulthood, there was a lot of push to say, hey, let's socialize medicine completely. Let's make it look like Canada. And they said, no, we can't make it look like Canada. Have you ever been to a doctor in Canada? You've got these long, long wait lists and you can't get the treatment that you want. You can't go in the same day. Well, guess where we are now in our sort of for-profit system? It's going to take you, you got to get on a waiting list to get on a waiting list. Uh, There's not enough doctors. There's not enough nurses. There's not enough nurse practitioners. So the prices are going up. We got to figure that out. Um, And if you think of it from a perspective difference. College is the same way. There's a lot of federal money available in college, which means negotiating for your price of tuition is not a thing. It used to be a thing. You used to be able to negotiate, but then government money came in and either made it free or gave you the ability to get a loan so that you everybody knows you have the ability to get the money. So how could you negotiate? And if you look at college professors and doctors today, they're making much, much, much more money than they did in the 1960s. Adjust for inflation all you want. That's, that's what I'm talking about. They're making huge amounts of money more now than they did then. That's probably a good thing because we need more of them. You know, the old, the, the professor that walks around with the suit jacket with the patches on the elbows, those leather patches, they look very sophisticated. Well, the reason why those patches existed is because they couldn't afford to go get a new jacket because the pay was so low and doctors had to get in their car and drive to go visit their patients and their pay was really low. And if they had medical bills or had medical uh, student loans, it took them forever to get them paid off. Well, now we've reversed that. It's gone the other way so that uh, tuition and so on has risen. Um, Medical rates have risen. So doctors are well compensated. Professors are well compensated. It's likely that we'll swing back the other way at some point. We might not because there's not enough of them to go around and we still want more of them. So these are issues that have to be dealt with. Figuring out the, the transparency on what we're paying in medicine is huge. We, we really need to get that fixed because that's something that all of us have in common. We all need it at some point. So getting that fixed, also not on any major political agenda right now. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of very specific items that are about the day-to-day life of people that are missing in politics, and we're wrapped up around some items that most people don't have impact their life. Abortion is one of them, and I know that's a hot topic, but if you think about how often you personally are involved in an abortion or someone that had an abortion or should have. It's a very small microcosm of your life, tiny versus going to the hospital for anything or the the student loans. I am not saying that the government should forgive student loans, but I also recognize that if a, a institution gets the majority of its money from student loans, it in essence becomes a monopoly. It has the price control 100%. Nobody gets to negotiate. And if it's a good enough price, that's fine. You don't get to negotiate your price at Walmart, but you do get to choose another place and you might be able to buy exactly the same price or exactly the same product for a lower price somewhere else. Maybe. Walmart's pretty good at that. College is different. The higher paid professors, not always, but generally are better professors. So going to a higher institution is a higher cost, and we've got to get that figured out. Now, having said all of that, there's a lot of stuff. Technology coming out on 
new generation of electricity is going to completely change the way we consider electricity going forward. But there's a bureaucratic government control in the middle of it. Texas is the most deregulated and it still has this major holdup in the council overriding the prices of of electricity. Anytime you split up an industry but you maintain governmental control, you're going to have a weird Frankenstein of socialism and capitalism. Either one could work. They each have their own flaws. Some of the flaws are bigger on one side or the other, but when you combine the two, you kind of get the worst of both. You know, if we look at Denmark, it's a great capitalist economy with a socialist pay structure. It's a weird contraption in that we've got for-profit institutions that are doing very well and a socialist system, and it seems to be working well. Now, they have a very homogenous culture. It works well, and this kind of goes directly back to the banking issue. If your customer base is all one industry, it's easier to make decisions, but it comes with a greater risk when things go wrong. Um, When we have our system, our system is not designed. It's bureaucratically put together by not just by a committee, but by opposing committees, lots of them everywhere. We, we really need to put some perspective on that. And at this point, the beginning of that, it looks like something we don't know. How do you take this apart? How do you control how things are paid for? How do you bring back some of the control to the actual customer? We have to start throwing some spit wads. We have to figure out what sticks because the system is getting worse. Uh, we've got better treatments and less access to those treatments. That's a problem, and we got to figure it out. I'm going to change the subject a little bit. We uh, have people that ask us about our bumper music when we're first coming on and the bagpipes and so on, and what's the reason for that? Number one, we like bagpipes. It kind of scares away the people that don't like capitalism as well. Capitalism as a concept, its father was a guy named Adam Smith, a good Scotsman. Been to his gravesite. Um, versus Karl Marx, who's a German, or was a German. So those two competing philosophies, which, by the way, Adam Smith didn't believe that he was competing with anyone with his capitalism. It was well in advance of Karl Marx. He just said that if, if you leave people alone to do what's in their own best interest, so long as it doesn't impede the interests of the people around them, then it raises the whole society, as if by an invisible hand. Now, a lot of people that are against the concept of capitalism skip the part about so long as it doesn't impede the interests of the people around them. A monopoly would impede the interests of other people. Um, Hurting someone to make a profit is not okay. Getting a better deal than someone is. Well, Karl Marx also had this beautiful idea from each according to merit to each according to need. And it's a beautiful concept, communism. Capitalism is a beautiful concept. Now I've just offended everybody. You've got equal opportunity offense here. All right, so I say communism is a beautiful thing. This is an area of study of mine because it's behavioral finance. It isn't economics in the traditional sense, even though it was written as economics in the traditional sense. What is a commune? At its most basic, it's a family. I have two children, one of whom is totally illiterate, and unemployed. The other one is barely literate and totally unemployed, totally drained on society. They are not doing anything. I mean, they are not even looking for jobs. 
The fact that they're eight years old and three years old is is a statement of, so what? This is a member of society. Shouldn't they be pre- preparing the world for their presence and earning their keep? Well, no. And I'm okay with that. I'm going to pay for them. Now, I might argue with them about how many toys they're allowed to buy at each trip. Uh, but from a perspective of what type of economy is that, it is purely communism. There's no doubt about it. Communism is a calm commune. It is a a group together, a community. And that's beautiful. It's the thing that most capitalism supporters want to protect is a family unit. Capitalism is about a lot of communes working together to find the best price. It's a little weird, and I can say they're both beautiful things. They're not in opposition to each other. They become in opposition to each other when they're mandated. And one of the things about a commune, a commune is one of the most efficient methods of economy. The shakers in the early 20th century kind of developed what we consider furniture today. They built the American concept of what furniture is. They invented the circular saw, which is used everywhere. This is kind of a cool thing. It was a commune, and communes tend to fail on the third generation. Kind of weird. Same's true with a family who's done well in capitalism. The Rockefellers is a good idea, a good concept. But if you look at every major wealth gatherer, they tend to go bankrupt in the third generation because the third generation doesn't remember the work that went into acquiring the wealth on capitalism. And in the commune side, communes work really, really well as long as everybody's a volunteer. As soon as you're not a volunteer, as soon as you're mandated to work, it falls apart. So the second generation at at the Shakers, they saw what their parents had done and the excitements that their their parent has brought to the, the work that they were doing and to the beauty of living all together. But the third generation growing up, kind of feels like, I don't have to work. I'm going to get paid anyway. In the Soviet Union, they had a saying at the fall of the Soviet Union in the decade leading up to it, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. And that's a concept that's true in a non-voluntary commune. When you take socialism, which is a kind of a weird political hodgepodge of communism and capitalism, instead of based on community, it's based on society. So there's different implications there. Uh, You've got a socialist system overlaying it, and there's some degree of, hey, I earned this because I paid into it in socialism. And, And you say, all right, well, the United States is a capitalist country. It's not socialist. Social security is socialism. It's even in the name. Medicare is socialism. Most capitalists in the United States will not refuse their social security payment when it's time to get it because you paid into the thing. You feel entitled to it. That's why it's called an entitlement because you feel like you earned it. Is that a bad thing for a society? No, it's actually good for capitalism. It does slow down growth because less than 100% of your income is going toward your own living and your own reinvestment in whatever you're doing to earn more. Some of it is going to people that aren't earning things, that aren't building society better in the traditional capitalist system. But by giving that payment out every month, let me kind of give you a, a comparison. In the Great Recession, 2008, 2009, we didn't have a Great Depression. Why? I mean, the scenario could easily have led to it. And when you compare it to the actual Great Depression, 
a lot of the same characteristics were present with banking failures and runs on banks and stock market crashes. So one of the major components that were different, though, is that there was a continual paycheck going out to Social Security. So people kept buying stuff. There was a big component of that. A a major percentage of the United States is getting Social Security. So when the economy suffers, that's, that's still happening. That's still money flowing into it. So now we have a weird hodgepodge. The weird thing about this weird hodgepodge is that it isn't weird at all. There is no such thing as a pure capitalism. There's no such thing as pure communism ever. And as a philosophy, it doesn't make sense anyway. I think Karl Marx had this. He, by the way, he was a critic of political economy. That, that was what he did. He was a critic of the political economy. And if you go back to the 1800s, the economy was really a politician-driven thing. Uh, the week before last, I talked about the Federal Reserve and how it used to be the place where... Uh, People that didn't get reelected for Congress for whatever reason got appointed to the Federal Reserve Board. It didn't work as well when that was the way it was run. It really was a political economy. Uh, and come forward to Ronald Reagan and, and Paul Volcker. And Ronald Reagan said to Volcker, hey, you're going to put us into a recession. And he said, yeah, sometimes that's my job. And I'm not going for political reasons to make it that we don't do this because it's more important to preserve money than it is to get you reelected. The reason why George H.W. Bush didn't get elected was a combination of read my lips, no new taxes, and then new tax, and that we were in a recession during the election. Bill Clinton's motto was, it's the economy, stupid. Now, it wasn't George H.W. Bush that put us into that recession. It was Federal Reserve raising interest rates, and Greenspan was a part of that. Well, Greenspan's not going to change his actions because he's an academic. It's not a politician. It was better for the U.S. economy, but we got a different president out of it. So there's a lot of components that need to be looked at. Marxism, I don't think he would have liked the term Marxism. All right. I'm out of time for this week. Hopefully I have uh, changed your viewpoint or at least added some fodder for your next conversation. Uh, If you'd like to talk to us off the air, we do give individualized, customized investment advice and portfolio management to people of relatively high net worth. The uh, local line is voicemail during the weekends, real life people during the week, 254-947-1111. You can reach it toll free at 1-800-914-PLAN. That's 1-800-914-7526. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can sign up for our newsletter, read the newsletter going back a long ways, listen to the radio program going back a long ways, um, and contact us through the contact form or email at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.